Father Michael Clark is the rector of the Guild of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus here in the Diocese of Bridgeport. He recently gave a, a talk as a part of the Bishop's Lecture Series on Gothic Architecture. And Father Clark is here with us today to talk about that talk, but also about beauty and its role in fostering and growing faith for all of us. So keep your radio right here, 1350 AM or 103.9 FM, or keep us on the Veritas app on your phone. You can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or veritascatholic.com. And if you're enjoying Let Me Be Frank on the app, help us out by going to your favorite podcast platform and give us a five-star rating. Help us reach more souls. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Foundations in Faith embraces innovative approaches to funding pastoral care programs in the Diocese of Bridgeport. Resources focus on energizing lifelong faith formation and discipleship and fostering a commitment to justice and accompaniment with our most vulnerable. From seminarians to retired priests, from baptism to last rites, from suburbs to inner cities, the reach is broad and the impact is meaningful. For more information, visit them on the web at foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and it is my great pleasure, as always, to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Well, my friend, we're back together again, hurtling our way to Lent. Oh, have, my word. And we have a repeat customer for the podcast for very good reasons, <laughs> which you're going to get to in a second, right? Yes, we do. I'm very excited <laughs> for this conversation, but I do want to uh, plug something because uh, as many of our listeners know, there is a tremendous organization here in the diocese called Malta House, and it is a a wonderful place, a home for for uh, women with their babies. And uh, there's a cool event coming up that's uh, that's going to be for Malta House's benefit, and this is really, I think, different and and cool. So uh, I just want to uh, tell people, Mark Schultz is an award-winning contemporary Christian singer and songwriter, and he's going to do a benefit concert for Malta House at the Fairfield University Quick Center. So the event is going to be on Friday, March 15th at 7 p.m. Uh, tickets and more information you can find at maltahouse.org. But this is going to be, I think, really tremendous, Excellency. Without a doubt. And just if I may just say this, you know, as a church... We stand squarely in support of unborn life, and we advocate for that. We help form people to live that. But Malta House is really walking the walk in the in support of life. You know, so there are eighteen babies as we speak who are living safely with their mothers at Malta House right now. Right? Wow. There are 15 moms right now in Walter House who would have been homeless if it wasn't for the existence of Walter House. And its operational budget is $1.6 million for the entire structure. So, I mean, I'm going to call on everybody who's on this podcast who's listening, who has the ability to go to really make every effort to do that because Walter House dearly needs our collective support to stand for life. Yes. Right? Yep. Yep, and what a fun way to do it with this concert. So, oh yeah, without a doubt, sure, sure, it's, because it's all about music. Yes, right. Oh, which is yes, which ties into what we're going to say. But let me just uh, one more time, just let people know it's March fifteenth, uh, and tickets and inform information are at maltahouse.org. Please check it out. And so, with that, 
let me uh, introduce our guest. It's been almost a year and a half since Father Michael Clark last joined you, Excellency. Has it really been? Wow. Yeah, wow. but Father Clark is doing such great work. I know our, our listeners know who he is, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Please. Father was uh, born and raised in the United Kingdom. He was a practicing barrister, a lawyer in England before he discovered his true vocation, which was to the priesthood. And uh, Father has a master's in theology from Cambridge University. Um, he sang professionally at uh, Exeter Cathedral and later at Buckfast Abbey. And he visited Connecticut in 2016, realized that this is the place to be. And he was ordained in the Diocese of Bridgeport in October 2019. Uh, Father Clark is now the rector of the Guild of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, which Bishop Caggiano launched as a means of reinvigorating faith through beauty. Father Clark, thank you so much for being here again. Steve, thank you. Bishop, thank you. It's great to be with you. And um, I can't wait for that concert from Alter House. I'm yeah. looking at this now. Yeah, tremendous. tremendous. First of all, Father Clark, thank you for coming back on the podcast because a lot has happened in a year and a half, a lot of development, which I want everyone on the podcast to hear. But last night, um, you were the inaugural speaker at the Bishop's Lecture Series. And allow me just to plug the, the series just for a second. It's, it, there's going to be periodic lectures, presentations. We've scheduled four for 2024 from various speakers, prominent individuals, experts in their field who will explore different aspects of faith for adults. So it's really adult faith formation experiences. And what drives it is the one. So we speak of opportunities to encounter Christ through truth, beauty, and goodness. We speak about ways of accompanying each other personally and in small groups. And the destination of all of this is to be fully active, consciously participate in the celebration of mass because that is the doorway to eternal life, in effect. It's the path to glory. So... Um, you gave what I think was a superb presentation last night, the very first, on Gothic architecture. So it is. it was videotaped. It will be sent to all the leadership of the diocese, so 9,000 people will get the video. I hope every, all 9,000 watch it, right, the talk. But could you give our listeners a bit of a synopsis of what you spoke about last night? Well, Bishop, first of all, it was... An honor to uh, to give the lecture, and I was dealing with something that is really close to my heart. I think uh, most people, have, when they they hear me speak, they they know that I was not raised around these parts. But where I was raised uh, is somewhere that you you can't mistake the impact of the sacred in daily life because there are these beautiful Gothic buildings that dot the landscape. Not just the great cathedrals I was speaking about yesterday. But even the simplest and humblest parish church, they are a, a witness in stone and glass to the presence of Christ in the middle of communities. And that's what I was talking about. I was trying to uh, explain how this particular architecture is more than just a decorative style. It's not just about being able to point to details and saying, oh, that's a, a Gothic arch or that's a piece of trellis work or whatever it may be. But instead that it's a culture it's a culture that puts Christ at the center because it is following the light. 
and that really, in, in Gothic terms, is the uh, the beacon that drew so much development in technology to create worship spaces that were really focused around the human person. They're very humane spaces. So that's really, in a nutshell, what I was trying to yep. illustrate by going yep. on, a, on a pictorial mm -hmm. tour uh, of some of these great buildings uh, mm -hmm. to illustrate the point. If I may, some of the very fact that it was evolutionary itself is instructive, right? Because it gradually evolved over time. But the constant through it all is very much what you just said. Um, and it's, it's, it's focus on allowing the human believer to worship God, to, to be disposed to worship God fully and consciously. And it, it, afterwards, you, you, you feel that a tremendous amount of questions. I only had a couple. And one person, I said to the person, I am not certain that for as long back as perhaps as I'm alive, when churches were built, newer churches were built, if the question was ever raised, how does the space actually help us to worship God and to enter into the sacrifice of Christ, right? which Gothic architecture evolved to make that more and more and more humane and focused in on that. Is that a fair way to put that? Did I take away the major point there? You absolutely did. It's really rooted in the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And all of these buildings, grand or simple, are designed to allow that to take place most effectively and most comfortably. Now, there, there are obviously some, some different perspectives than we might have today. I think the, the Council of Trent and the post-Reformation period changed the emphasis somewhat and uh, really put the, the, the focus on visibility, whereas that wasn't such a concern in the medieval times. But what was a concern was directionality, being able to move from where you are to somewhere different because Christ is present for you. You, you can be on that pilgrimage, if you like, within the building itself. I think we've lost some of that, to be honest. And in making everything visible, you, you lose a sense of the mystery. So you always have to be careful that there are losses and gains. All right. Well, you lose the, the sense of discovery. Yes. See, in many ways, I've told this story many times, and, I, and the older I become, the more I recollect it, which is interesting. I guess there is some truth that the older you become, it's your youth that you have to revisit and and perhaps learn the lessons you couldn't have learned when you were young. You learn them when you're older. But the fact that when I grew up in the original church of St. Simon and Jude, that the, the, the space itself was evocative, and I use that word particularly, it was evocative for me. Um, I can't escape that now looking back because it elicited out of me a response that was not necessarily intellectual. It led to it, but it wasn't initially one that was intellectual. And I'm going to say something you corrected if you disagree and expound, please, from your expert perspective. But now we have led for many years from the intellectual and I think it has run somewhat its course because it's led to this very strange notion 
that I go to worship to get something out of it, that I get something out of it, right? Does that strike you as a, 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 an accurate diagnosis? It, it does, Bishop. You, you, you gave us a diptych there, really, one where you're reflecting on memory and, and how important that is in the life of faith. And also the tension between participation in mystery and a more didactic method of learning information about God, this whole idea of I'm not getting something out of mass. Well, what are you putting into it is the question that I'll often ask in, in that uh, situation. And I don't mean that in, a, in, a, in an aggressive way, but when we say, okay, I need to get something out of mass, you're present at the sacrifice of Calvary. It's, it's there before your eyes. What Really, what more could you want? Um, and, and I think that what we, that, that underlies is, is um, not fully inhabiting the mystery. It's not really got very, very deep into, into the soul. And that's where memory, which is fascinating what you were talking about, the Church of St. Simon and Jude of your, of your youth, because I think that we perfect our memory over time. At the time, perhaps the memory was not always all that great, and we might have been distracted or bored or nonchalant about being there. I Certainly, that's true of me. I had the great privilege of growing up inside one of these buildings. Practically, I was in the building every single day, early in the morning and in the evening, in order to practice the singing that was necessary for the daily offices in the cathedral. And, you know, walking through spiral staircases with the worn steps, I can, I can even get the smell of the building now. Mm -hmm. It has a unique fragrance to it. And I didn't pick it up at the time. But as I look back, I've taken away any of the negative, and, and all I can see really is the truth of that experience. And I think that, in a way, tells us something as well about the Eucharist, and particularly the Hebrew idea of memory, of making something present. It's not something that happened in the past. I can make that experience present, that the goodness of it is something which, in in my mind, I'm allowed to recreate even now. Right. Very powerful. It, it, it absolutely is. And it, as I said, for, from part of what why I'm so grateful for the Guild and the work it's doing, which we'll get to and try to get an update on all the things, when we sit in in a space dedicated to the worship of God. We have to ask ourselves the question, what is worship to begin with? What is it that ultimately we are doing? And if we are rendering to God a response of faith, recognizing that God is God and we are not God, let's start with that, right? It's a fundamental stance, right? And that therefore, God asks of us something before we expect something back. We must give, right? So we come to worship to offer something to God, which is our very life. And we as Christians do that in union with the one sacrifice in which we have eternal life. Because if I were to offer to God my life, if I didn't have a savior or redeemer, it is, it is a gift that would be offered perhaps with the best of intention, but without the finality that we have in Jesus Christ who will bring it to glory if we live in him. So the dynamic is so different from the modern world that says it's all about me. No, it's not. It's all about him. 
Mm. And the space has to evoke that. So, so it's not enough to give intellectual assent. You have to give your heart over, right? Absolutely. And, and every aspect of the church is important because of this. The, the doorway cannot just be bland and everyday. It's, it's the threshold between heaven and earth. I love it when you see these carvings um, in medieval churches that says, you know, this is the, the none, none less than the house of God and the gate of heaven, which is uh, Jacob's response at, at Bethel, where he recognizes the presence of God. And to have that r reminder as you're crossing through that threshold, you're not in any old space. You're not in somewhere that can be decorated, you know, like your homes or your, your offices. It's not a business environment. It's something where you are really in, you know, you you are in that foretaste of heaven. Mm -hmm. and, and our churches need to bespeak that mm -hmm. if they're going to do their job properly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's at the cathedral, St. Augustine's. One of the most beautiful elements of the cathedral are its windows. They're beautiful. In fact, I am in I'm in the midst now of of hopefully getting the best of the best in this country to come and restore the the windows, and to make sure that they are permanently protected from the outside with unbreakable glass because they are a treasure that could not be replicated now. I don't I'm not sure there would be the artistic ability to do that, but when I go to the cathedral. And many times I find myself there when there's no one there. And at other times in advance of some ceremonies or celebrations of the celebration of mass, I get lost in the window. And there were different windows. The very expression of some of the, of the figures in that window when they're looking at Christ and the faces that they make, you could get lost in that because the truth is I have had, I've made that face to the Lord in different parts of my life. And it, it evokes this notion that last night after your talk, which I thought was tremendous, uh, I, I reminded a woman who came to me and I said, you, you do realize that what we have in common between the Middle Ages and the contemporary world is illiteracy. Yes. In the Middle Ages, they could not read and write. In the modern age, we can, and we're illiterate of the mysteries of faith. So should not space instruct and teach and evoke? so that we understand the faith, not just intellectually, but effectively. And I thought, like, and I'm 65 years old, and I'm still amazed at what can happen just from the space. Well, God speaks in the liturgy in a nonverbal language. That's why really the, the question of the language of liturgy, for me personally, is secondary to what is in fact going on. And that's important, too, when we consider the built environment as well, because there is a vocabulary that either speaks more or less clearly of God. And a church should always be speaking of God. It should never speak to us of something which is distracting or uh, irrelevant to, to that communication that God desires to have to us. A stained glass window is a perfect example. Who thought for the first time, I want to depict an image on the glass itself or create it out of the glass itself. It's extraordinary, really. You know, a window is simply there to emit light into a building, but to use it as in as a means of, of teaching the faith, I think, is 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 quite extraordinary. But also that a stained glass window comes alive because of the presence of the light. Exactly. And how much that is for us, you know, to see that. Exactly. But, I think it's experience, you know, living with these buildings, yourself at the, the church of your childhood, myself at Exeter Cathedral, 
they're always speaking to you. And sometimes you don't even realize the effect they're having on you. And I think that's something which we could do more with in, in yes. terms of script building. I would agree. I would agree. There were two interesting questions that came up. Um, the first was the question of resources and money. Yes. The, the one woman raised the question, um, if we were to really devote ourselves to creating, I'm, I'm, I'm making the question generic, beautiful spaces of worship that could mimic in some way right, what was done in the great Gothic cathedrals. Would we have the resources? Could we raise the money? And your response to that, do you remember? Well, um, I, I think my response was rather, rather perhaps rather fair than say God has lots of money, which was uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta's response yes. to the, that same objection. Yes, yes. What I that in a non-flippant way is to say that if there if people are inspired, the money will come. I don't think that we should be should be worried about. The other thing as well is that what is true is that artists are often not paid what they should be paid. Mm -hmm. So if that's not contradictory to say that, that we shouldn't be worrying about money, but we should also be paying our artists more, um, I think those things can go together when we've created a culture of art, one that sees that this is worth right. investing in. And I think that's a, a church building is always an investment. Without a doubt. You see, and the funny thing is, two thoughts came to my mind as I was driving back to Stanford after that. The first is, I go back to, again to my upbringing in Brooklyn and Perpetual Help Basilica in Sunset Park, the Redemptorist Parish, was built at the turn of the 20th century. And it was built with the pennies and nickels of the Irish immigrants who served as housemaids and drivers and gardeners of very wealthy people. And to build that building now would be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But what made it possible was that it was commonly agreed to, understood, supported. To your point, there was a culture that said, God does get the best. And if we all chip in, it is possible. It doesn't have to rely solely on the patrons. It relies on everyone. And that's, I, I, I would have mentioned that to the woman after, I didn't think of it, but it's, if everyone sees it a value, this is quite easily accomplished, right? It is. If, and the other is, and this I'm curious to see what you think, it, it, it also dawned on me that when you look at the wealth that existed at the time of the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, and the amount of money it would have cost to build those cathedrals, if you were to say the proportion of money that needed to be used to build them, whatever it was, versus the amount of wealth that exists now, and the amount of money it would be, the proportion now is much less than it would have been then. Correct? Uh, I agree wholeheartedly. And I'm going to make an, I'm going to even springboard from those points and make a further one. We don't know what's in our communities already. Now, you started the, the Guild of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus, and you asked me to go out and see who was there. Mm -hmm. And one of the most extraordinary stories I can tell you is that just in setting up here in the middle of the woods of Reading, Connecticut, we found an artist within a few days who is so skilled at using egg tempera paint. She creates the most astonishing artwork for us on a regular basis. 
And she was always there, but we didn't know about her. Isn't that interesting? And I think that some of the expense of these big projects, because so few people are being encouraged by the church to do it, there are only one or two firms of church decorators out there, and they have to support their staff and they have to go around the country. So in terms of what, why does it cost so much? Because you're not just paying for the art, you're paying for the travel, you're paying for the hotels, you're paying for the, the design, all of those other things. But we have people in our own local area, in our parishes even, that can do this work. And I think as well, we may, perhaps we should adjust our expectations because to produce good quality sacred art is really about learning the principles and a lot more people can do it than, than perhaps realize already. Yeah, and that is what I think an unforeseen, but for myself, extraordinarily grateful consequence of creating the guild, and now other guilds are following, is because it gives a focal point where people who do have these skills, desires, interests, passions, can say, well, this this could be where I can give of my talent. There's a There's like a funnel now to bring people who are either blessed with the ability to produce sacred art in all its character forms, as well as a way for it to be shared with the larger church. So it, it, it didn't exist before. Now it does. It's fascinating, right? To your point. And there were a few other individuals I saw last night that, that have come forward and are working with you that chances are may not have had the venue to do it, right? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And we created this community by drawing together people who share a passion, who share interest. And that's always alongside the structures that were already there in the church. So it's really innovative. I, I'm so excited as to what we've been able to achieve so far and what the Lord is going to bless us with for the future as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tremendous. I think we're coming up to a break and then we'll talk about more recent developments at the Guild. Tell us, what you, you can give us a lowdown of what's going on. Sure. Yes, this is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. His Excellency is speaking with Father Michael Clark, who is the rector of the Sacred Heart Guild here for beauty. We'll be right back after the break. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450. 
and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. His Excellency is speaking with Father Michael Clark about uh, beauty and the, uh, the guild that's here in our diocese uh, to, to promote beauty and faith. So, Father Clark, there was one question uh, raised last night that could be the entree to why the Sacred Heart Guild exists. And it was the question of how is architecture considered sacred art? So this is my question to you. In your mind, when we use the word sacred art or sacred arts, what falls under that umbrella? What would you consider to be, in, in the sense, what do you consider to be uh, the domain or the mission of the Guild of the Most Sacred Heart Jesus? What falls into your purview? Well, I think those are, those are two questions, but I think that to, to answer the first one regarding what, what can be counted, considered as art, well, art clearly has to involve skill. So we're talking about human activity that is creative and requires skill in order to communicate something. That is, I think, the difference between art and uh, you know, a child scribbling on, on, on the or table. Google. Or Google. Or, or, right. <laughs> so it's, it's about skill and creativity to, to desire to communicate a message. So architecture absolutely is art. Because the desire of somebody with skill, whether that's a mason or a glazier or a painter, is to communicate something that's important to them. And in the case of sacred architecture, that is, of course, the liturgy, a space fitting and appropriate for the sacred worship of God. And in that sense, you know, I, I think it really isn't controversial to, uh, to consider it to be art. But when we're thinking about art, there's a Art with a capital A, uh, which perhaps we might more helpfully describe as fine art, which is painting and sculpture, and the arts, which can be a, a much broader realm of human activity, includes music, it in includes drama, it includes literature. So w when you set up the Jesus Guild uh, 21 months ago, you asked me to focus on on art, architecture, music, and literature. So we consider our purview uh, according to those four pillars. So when we're looking at our programs and saying, are we hitting the, the benchmarks? We have to look and say, well, what have we got that's in those categories for people to encounter Christ? Mm -hmm. uh, and what, what are we doing in those areas to accompany them? Because of course, the Jesus Guild is part of the one, the invitation that you described last night. And so we have to to you know, hold ourselves to account for that. We can't just do everything. No, 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 very, no, that's we impossible. Very, right. We have to be very um, right. conscious of mission creep as well, because we don't want to convert ourselves into uh, a, a weird kind of knocked out of shape parish or uh, something which is focused too narrowly on one thing to the exclusion right. of the other. Right. So we have to remember that this has a very defined right. Right. purpose and right. mission. Right. You know what's interesting? It's um, part of the growing pains we are facing as a church is now we are at the point where we can concretize this famous shift from maintenance to mission. It's one thing to speak of it theoretically, 
It's another thing to actually create the nimble structures that go beyond but serve the typical structures of parishes and schools to be able to give people these entrees of opportunities of encounter so that they can go when the one is fully realized in their life. And it's not fully realized, but it's realized to the point where they're at Sunday worship, which is the threshold of the heavenly banquet, growing deeper in their relationship with the Lord, being accompanied in faith as disciples, right? So so you, the guild is one example, and there are others that we need to create that complement. So it's not going to replace, it complements. But to your point, it's not to to evolve into like a, a parish or a quasi or some sort of some sort of structure that looks like no, it, it's a it's a mission structure, right? So it's a pioneer in that sense, and 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 some things will work, some things won't. But you got to to your point. I think. A lot of bishops have struggled with this, how to do this. Well, Bishop, can I make a, maybe a controversial point, which is that our predecessors, and I'm, I'm talking bishops and priests, our predecessors as clergy, two generations, three generations past, did not pick up on a, on a huge change amongst their people that would alter the face of the church, and that was transport. When our structures were put in place, the diocese and the parishes, People didn't move around all that much, mm -hmm. certainly not as much as they do now, but the, the idea that we would organize it in this way with everybody having their own personal form of transport, it just doesn't make sense at all. Mm -hmm. But when that change started to happen, the church obviously was so focused on, on just meeting the day-to-day -day needs, it didn't perhaps look forward. But we now have another challenge. Not only is everybody physically more mobile than, than, than ever before, and it you know it doesn't cost proportionally that much to to move around the place wherever you want to and whenever you want to, but also we can do our work remotely. So the the old structures of commuting are changing, and the, the pressures on our own transport system is changing. So again, we, we've got another new thing that we have to organize the the life of worshiping God, which requires fixed places in order to do it. You can't just set up shop to celebrate mass conveniently. On the move, we we have to have locations, and and uh, we have to gather people together. You know, as as much as it's important that people should be able to participate remotely if they can't physically get to a church, we need to be together. We need to be in well, without a doubt, because that's what worship is. It's part of the so, sacrifice. So that, but those all those structures need to mm -hmm. to relate to the reality of where of where Absolutely. people are. Absolutely, to the extent that a person is able to offer worship and therefore offer the sacrifice of myself in Christ to the, to the Father uh, requires your body because that's part of who you are. You can't leave it comfortably behind. It's your whole person needs to be part of it. Anyway, listen, tell us what is going on in the, in the guild. <laughs> well, we are, I think I'm going to start with the art school because that's perhaps the, uh, the, one of the treasures that has shown remarkable growth in just such a short period of time. And we're about to expand this as much as we possibly can. Of course, growth is, it's important to grow well, not just to grow, but to grow well. You have to do it in step. Otherwise you, you uh, end up with, with creating more problems as well. But our art school is is designed to um, equip 
the people of God with the skills necessary to create for him. And uh, we, we see that not just in providing education to, to kids, but also to adults. So that's the first uh, development is we're going to I I increase our provision of classes for adults. And that's not just uh, painting, but drawing and possibly some other skills as well. Um, I put a poll out on our newsletter. I'll talk about our newsletter in a moment, but I put a poll out. And, and one of the things that people really wanted was pottery. So that's going to be a challenge for me to try and create pottery classes for uh, for people. Um, but the art school, which is based on our campus in Georgetown at the moment, needs to have satellite locations in the diocese as well. And I'm already hearing from schools, for example. I had one uh, head teacher who said, "Well, Father, this would be a great place to uh, to come and and uh, and, uh, and and partner with us." So I'm looking into all these different possibilities for partner venues and also recruiting more teachers. We have a fantastic uh, artist uh, called Adrian Kegel, and she's very well known in Newtown. And we've known each other since I was uh, assigned to St. Rose Parish. And um, really, her fame goes before her, and she would hate me for saying that, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that's because she has an, an amazing way to connect with children, to teach them the skills and the artwork that our kids are able to produce under her tutelage is really quite amazing. But there's only one of her. So if I'm going to expand the program, I need more teachers who are going to be involved with that. And to have more teachers, I'm going to need to coordinate it. So we're actually on the hire at the moment as it happens. So looking for art teachers and hopefully to uh, recruit a coordinator who will keep all these uh, uh, these different uh, programs in place. But So you will see this in a in, in a parish hall in a school near you um, and whenever you see the sign of the red cardinal bird you know it's the the jesus guild is around and so we'll see this as a program that people can access and make it very clear where we are and where we're going to be that's one element but music perhaps is the other that people are going to see a, 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 an expansion of uh, very very shortly so we've already launched this remarkable new experience which was called when it first launched a gentle whisper but we're actually changing it now to being called word and song and it's a little bit of a play on the words because we have as you know bishop a very talented concert pianist in our diocese called sue song and she is really amazing she does a lot of work at saint michael's in greenwich and she had the idea of um i suppose it's really from from her experience in italy it's really a, 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 a tableau where she will play and then there are readings at the same time. It's a really beautiful experience. We trialed it at St. Michael's and it was very popular. So we're going to expand that throughout the diocese. So Sue has very generously um, agreed to do a, a three more sessions this year. And so they'll be in different geographical points of the diocese and they'll involve poetry reading, uh, and potentially some extemporaneous uh, storytelling and or, or such like from from me actually and maybe others. Uh, that's a really exciting program we've got there. Um, Heart to Heart, which was our contemporary music apostolate, is also going to undergo something of a reboot and a retool over this year because we want to encourage something of the flavor of a music festival. And I think that those experiences where it's possible to listen to contemporary music outside 
in the summertime. It will be really very popular. So we're going to trial that over the summer. And um, we've got a few ideas for venues for that. Basically, anywhere with a good field um, and some shade as well, because we know, remember, uh, it's dark and cold today, but nevertheless, we know how hot it gets here in the oh, summer. Without a doubt. I don't want people yeah. fainting. Exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and the third element for music is very, very shortly, hopefully at the end of this year, we'll, we will begin our first in a series of choral concerts. Um, and this is to explore the treasure of sacred choral polyphony with with our people. And for many, it's not possible to incorporate that into the celebration of Holy Mass because you don't want something which makes Mass feel like a concert. If it's in the culture already of the church, that's one thing. But to to have the, you know very fancy music suddenly parachuted into your celebration of Mass, it's going to be distracting and disorienting. So we have to build that culture first in order to receive it into the liturgy. And the way to build that culture is to listen to the music outside of the context of mass, but um, in, in a sacred place and you know with, with sacred themes rather than having a mix of sacred and secular music. So we'll be going around the diocese as well with, with that. And I've, I've uh, launched since uh, we last spoke a new girls' choir, which um, until I'm corrected, I'm going to claim is the first Catholic girls' choir, just for girls, in the country. I'm pretty sure it is. And it's it's modeled along the English cathedral tradition, which I'm very familiar. No we've, surprise. No uh, surprise. Right. We've got the 21 girls. It's just <laughs> like with the art from the beginning when we set up Jesus Guild. Put the call out there, and would you believe it? There are 21 young ladies. They're between the ages of 8 and 18, and they responded to that call, and they meet every Friday at the moment, and that's when we're meeting, every Friday, to uh, learn sacred polyphony and Gregorian chant. We have a lot of fun together. I'm actually directing it myself personally at the moment. I'm not sure how long I'll be able to do that, continue it, but nevertheless, I'm having a lot of fun doing that. And we're also teaching the girls music theory because that's essential. You have to equip them with the skills to, to actually perform the art, you have to have some other skills in the background as well. So um, that's, they're really kind of in preparation. And the girls have had one outing already. They had a very successful compliment, but the church was packed to hear the girls sing. And so I'm very, uh, very excited to see what the Lord will do with that. Um, and uh, that will be something that, again, people will see in their parishes around the diocese. We'll, we'll make sure we make lots of noise so that people know where and when to to access those choral concerts. Mm -hmm. But art and music are really the the, the the main things that you'll see us going around uh, mm -hmm. the diocese for. We're also planning an exhibition of sacred art, and we're hopefully going to launch that in the fall. And that exhibition will be gathering treasures that already exist in our diocese. So, Bishop, I'm going to need your help with that, no doubt. Mm -hmm. But one thing I want to do is to see what we already have. And I'm already I'm a bit of a magpie when it comes to sacred art. I'm, I've already been collecting bits and pieces um, from around the world, actually. And so we have some fantastic things to show people. I've um, managed to secure a set of stained glass windows. We were talking about stained glass earlier. I've managed to procure a set from England that were made for, curiously enough, a congregational church in Derby in England in the, at the turn of the, the 20th century by the famous 
firm of Clayton and Bell. Clayton and Bell was uh, one of these um, workshops, an atelier that that produced great quality sacred art um, for a period of around 70 years or so. Um, but this time scale, the early 20th centuries, when they were doing their, their best work, and these figures are, they're, they're enormous. They're, you know, nine foot tall. And um, just to see the face of Christ, Bishop, I remember I showed you the the, the panel yes, yes. of our Lord. And here it is, a, a stained glass window, but painted on. You can't even see it from the ground level. Painted on are the drops of blood and marks of the, of the crown of thorns. How extraordinary. So people will be able to see them in close up because they'll be in an exhibition in light boxes to be able to actually see how a stained glass window is made um, and hopefully to to elicit right. a bit of that excitement about what we already have. Right. You know what's interesting? I, I remember when I came for, I, I, I guess it was New Year's Day when I came to preside at Mass, yes. I, I believe. And it again, it, it caused me to think on my drive, at, drive back to Stanford because I've often, not often, but I have preached about the the wounds of the risen Lord that remained, because he invited Thomas to put his hand in, to put his finger into his hand and his hand into his side. So, and the great mystery of the resurrected, glorified Christ carrying the wounds unto eternity, right? Which itself is a powerful message. But I had never thought of the wounds created by the crown of thorns. And it, I was. And of course, Thomas wasn't invited to touch them, obviously, because they would be very small. But I had never given it any thought of whether or not there would be enduring wounds from that as well. It's right? a great, great source of richness, isn't it? And the mystics often contemplate the wounds of our Lord. And um, I'm re I recall one who asked our Lord, which was the most painful. And the response that the Lord gave was the shoulder, the shoulder wound of carrying the uh, the cross beam itself, the shoulder wound was the, the most painful. But um, the the source of imagination of those wounds as well is is has something which has enlivened the medieval mind. Um, at Christmas time, and we just celebrated Christmas Christmas time. Um, a lot of uh, you know, beautiful traditions uh, arise, and one which really struck me is the, the tradition of the goldfinches at Christmas. And you see this in some medieval artwork where our Lord is is depicted uh, as an infant holding a goldfinch or with goldfinches around. And and that tradition comes from the fact that the goldfinch has a, a kind of a red crest on its head, a little mark of, of red feathers. And the, the, the story goes that the, the finches um, watching the crucifixion were so concerned uh, that their Lord and Savior was in pain that they went to try and and, mm -hmm. and minister to him by taking out the thorns on his head. And, and is and that the, right? They're doing, oh, wow. they're doing. They got marked by his blood, and so they retain they retain the mark of the passion. So the goldfinches is uh it is linked to the passion of our Lord, and whenever you see them, you see their red marks, and it reminds you of the passion. Mm -hmm. And all those beautiful stories that are, are really kind of reflections upon upon the wounds. You know, I, I'm I am meditating on a book that um, highlights one a day for twenty eight days the twenty eight frescoes that appear in the Basilica of Saint Francis of Assisi, mm. 
And Bonaventure's um, narrative, his legend of the life of St. Francis, and his artistic interpretation of what the fresco, what Giotto was trying to convey. And it just struck me that I had never imagined maybe five years ago doing that, and yet it's so fruitful for prayer and reflection. Again, it's, it's unlocking the power of beauty and it's evocative power to be able to lead people to a deeper faith. And it has brought back, again, to speak of memories, as, as I drive up to, to Bridgeport, where I am now, uh, it, my experience of being at the Basilica and seeing those frescoes for the first time and not understanding cognitively what I was seeing, but intuiting some of what is now being reflected back to me in this book. It's just fascinating. It's, just, it's so fascinating. And the fact that I've shared this before, that when my mother was dying, that was where she wanted to go. Mm. She wanted to go to the tomb of St. Francis. So it's, it's, it's quite, I, I think, Father Clark, your work and the guild's work is onto something very, very powerful and extraordinarily needed. Now, not, not to presume something on you, but you and I and Father Lennox have had this conversation, so I want to share it with our listeners, and that is, in order for the tenor of the way the Mass is celebrated needs to be addressed, uh, there are elements that can be taken in and of themselves and made f foci of, of real formation, training. For example, preaching, we've talked about that. Right. It's not about what I get out of it, but it's a, it's a golden opportunity to break open the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to his divine in inspiration to move people. So we're working on the center for preaching, which is another topic. But the three of us had spoken about the possibility of helping priests, myself the first on the list, the very first on the list, is to teach priests how to chant. Yes. how to chant correctly, right? So that when the time comes, when it's called for, it's done in such a way that you're not, you know, bringing people to this tortured experience of, of praying that it ends, <laughs> but actually it's evocative, right? Of God's presence. So uh, I, again, this is premature, but this is the sort of thing I think would be the next step in the evolution of the guild, right? I, absolutely. I think if priests feel comfortable about the idea of chanting, of singing the parts of the Mass that pertain to them, that will also foster a culture of singing with the people, because the people will respond to that. In fact, I mean, part of the beauty of the Mass is the is the response that is given to Christ by the people. And so if Christ in the person of the priest is singing to the people, then the people will respond in song as well. And singing is is not simply, again, a, a decorative um, human activity. It's something whereby we elevate speech itself by making it more beautiful. It's that form of speech that, uh, that really kind of delights the ear even more than the spoken words. So, of course, it should be a part of, of, of our liturgy in its place. All, all of us who who um, are, you know, are, are celebrating the Mass every day know the beauty of a quiet mass. No one is saying that every mass has to have 
music now. And, and, yeah. And great drama and, and, and incense and what have you. But sometimes that's, that's, that's appropriate. Other times we want the quietness. But if, we, if we're never able to sing the mass, if we're just not able to do it at all, if it, if it uh, causes us great trepidation, then there's a danger, I think, of, of, of um, harboring an opposition to it, which is not opposition to music or beauty in itself, but it's because it, I can't do it, and therefore I'm going to feel challenged by it. So I'm going to find some other esoteric reason as to why uh, that shouldn't be done. Whereas if we if we help, you know, if if myself or and other priests that that are musicians will help our brothers to to be able to uh, to sing when they when when they want to when it's appropriate, I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I'd see in my seminary training, it was never brought up. It was never an issue. And quite frankly, for me, if I start okay, then it's okay. If I don't start on the right foot, it's a it's a ship that sinks very quickly. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I think that 95% of people can sing. I'm pretty convinced of that. Many people say, oh, I can't sing. I can't hold a note. But for the most part, it's because people are not connecting their ears to the way that they're producing sound. Most people can sing. And most people can hold a note. And that is, as long as you can hold a note, that's really all there is. Because everything that's more complicated about a priest singing is, is really just an embellishment of this idea of just holding a steady note. Right. To do that in a way which is clear and confident. And if you can do that, of course, you can be understood without the need of artificial amplification for a much larger kind of uh, space. You don't have to be amplified if you're singing. Right. I don't recall if it was St. Jerome or St. Gregory in the Office of Readings who points to the example of the workers in the field that would break out into song as they were praying, as they were harvesting the, the crops and they would sing. And it was there, it was almost like prayer going into a form of much more sublime expression. I would say ecstasy may be an exaggeration, but, and it was in song that they did that. Now that's bold interesting you mentioned that Bishop, because just recently there was an article um, in the Catholic journals that was making the link between sea shanties and Gregorian chant. Fascinating link to make because, of course, a sea shanty is not simply about men who are at work having fun. It's very necessary. It's actually for their safety. The sea shanty is there to make sure that, that everybody is, is rowing or doing whatever action they're doing in the same time. It keeps the rhythm and it also lifts the spirits. And... The argument was made that Gregorian chant, for example, has a similar role in the Roman rite, because if the if the liturgy is the work of the people, and that's literally what the the word as as we know means, then that work to be organized, to be regularized, and, and to be done in such a way that's that is consistent, benefits greatly from the organizing principle of music, where beauty and reason meet. Right. And I think it's a very interesting thing that, that we would be singing up whilst we're working. Right. Interesting. Fascinating. We have much more to talk about, perhaps a third occasion down, <laughs> down the road. Look forward to it. I, th I think this is uh, an indication that we shouldn't wait so long to have Father Clark back again. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano on the Veritas Catholic Network. He's been speaking with uh, Father Michael Clark, the rector of the Jesus Guild here in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and we will be right back with a listener question.
Hey, this is Matt Sparazza from The Tangent. Each week on The Tangent, my co-host, Father Sam Kachuba, and I go on tangents to show how intertwined the Catholic faith and our culture really are. With guests like Scott Hahn, Dr. Greg Pitaro, Kristalina Everett, and so many more, The Tangent is always entertaining and informative. Check us out on Fridays at 12.30 on 103.9 FM, 1350 AM, anytime on the Veritas app, or wherever you get your podcasts. God bless. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Our Excellency, here is this week's listener question. It says, uh, Bishop Frank, do you have any advice for someone who is interested in the diaconate or the priesthood? Yeah, uh, I mean, first and foremost, um, trust your interest. Because there will be a thousand voices that will say, nah, it can't be, or no, it's your imagination, or no. But if you if you have an interest, follow the interest with an openness of heart. Find yourself a, a someone with whom you can share what your heart is saying. Presumably someone who can be a director. And then just trust that if this is what God wants, do it. Because he will give you what you need to serve him. So just trust your interest and do and la- allow it to move forward. Everything else will fall into place. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, if if I if this uh, man um, wants is interested in the priesthood, he should look up Father Chris Ford. He'll call me. Either one. Okay. Great. I just met with a gentleman just earlier today who's discerning. Oh yeah. Oh wow! Fantastic. All right, so if you have a question for Bishop Frank, you can send it in on social media or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And thank you to our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. A grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations in Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport. And you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. Father Michael Clark, thank you so much for joining us. Please tell listeners where they can learn more and sign up for the newsletter and all that good stuff. Certainly. So you must check out our beautiful website, jesusguild.org. And if you want to sign up for our newsletter, at the moment it's a little bit complicated because we are being hosted by um, a company called Beehive, which is not spelt in like the way that homes the little bees, but it's spelled B-E-E-H-I-V-E.com. So to sign up for Sirsum Quarter, we'll probably put the link to you, Steve. That's probably going to be the easiest way to do it. But it is sirsumquarter.beehive.com, spelled in that strange way. Google will help you to, to, to find it as well. Sirsum Quarter is a newsletter that comes out every Wednesday morning. And in it are articles and inspiration about all of our work in the diocese and beyond. Yeah, it's fantastic. We'll put links in the show notes, definitely. Thank yeah. you. Well, Clark, thank you for your great work. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bishop. It's good Amen. to be And before we go, Excellency, would you please give us your blessing? In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for allowing us to worship you in mind and heart renewed. We ask that your Spirit bless the work of the Sacred Heart of Jesus Guild, Father Clark, all who are involved, in unlocking the power of beauty as a doorway into your heart. May all that we do 
and all that we say give you honor and glory. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, my friends. Father Clark, I will see you. Steve, I'll see you next week. Thanks, Excellency. Thanks, Father.